Hello. In episode 23 of Airs for Architecture's second season, Fonna Foreman and Teddy Cruz speak about their design practice, research and writing, now comprehensively and elegantly presented in two fantastic books, Spatialising Justice, Building Blocks, published in October last year, and Socialising Architecture, Top Down, Bottom Up, published this month, both by MIT Press. A lot of our work has dealt with researching the bottom-up energies, uh, the, the kinds of processes that are embedded in migrant neighborhoods as people negotiate their own spaces as uh, processes of solidarity and uh, localized policy, let's say, the, the, the sort of organizational, social and political practices begin to emerge to resist the imposition of exclusionary economic policies and so on. So in other words, the, the creative intelligence that is inscribed in these migrant communities, we've been uh, researching, but all, also mobilizing to allow us to really rethink our own methods, our own procedures. And somehow we feel that this knowledge needs to be represented. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of AS for Architecture. I am honoured today to be talking to two um, personal heroes of mine, Fonna Foreman and Teddy Cruz. Um, Fonna and Teddy, would you introduce yourselves, please? Yes, I'm uh, Teddy Cruz. Uh, I'm a professor of public culture and urbanization in the visual arts department at University of California, San Diego, where I also co-direct the Center on Global Justice with my partner, Fonna Foreman. Um, I'm originally from Guatemala in Central America and uh, migrated to the United States in the early 80s. And incrementally, uh, as I arrived to San Diego, California, uh, began to realize that I had landed in one of the most interesting geographies of conflict in the world, really. And uh, incrementally, it began to be the laboratory for a lot of the thinking and practice, really, that we have developed in the last uh, years, primarily I think that at some point, the realization of as architects, we did not necessarily wanted to uh, focus on our practice devoted to, how would I say, designing houses for the wealthy or boutique hotels, but that we really wanted to head on uh, enter into this territory, which is in a way for many decades had been the issues, the issues embedded in this territory had been so off the radar of schools of architecture and of the profession of architecture itself. So uh, um, I began to realize how fundamental it was to reorganize uh, my own thinking and my own methodologies and strategies as an architect by deepening the relationship to the specificity of this territory. And, uh, and incrementally, I think the passions and the kind of dreams uh, of shaping a practice, not, not only as a way of building something, but as a, a, an object, let's say, of architecture, but as a way of building a position uh, to then detonate a very different idea of practice. So the focus be became really, uh, generally speaking, we can talk more about it later, I think, uh, it, really understanding the positive impact of immigrants in the transformation of the American neighborhood. Um, and so uh, from the beginning, I think uh, this uh, idea of focusing on bottom-up informal urbanization uh, in the hands of migrants uh, uh, and to reinvent and reimagine the city from below really is ultimately what joined uh, my practice. I think what they eventually, that's how Fona and I uh, really came together uh, uh, focusing on, on, on informal uh, dynamics, let's say, in the city across a variety of registers. So maybe Fona can introduce herself now. We can talk, touch on other issues later. Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, amazing. Um, Fona, follow that. Follow that. So I'm Fauna Foreman. I am uh, a political theorist, a professor of political theory at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, where I founded and direct the UCSD Center on Global Justice, which is focused on community-based solutions to poverty and other environmental stressors. And we have increasingly over the years focused on challenges right here in the San Diego-Tijuana border region, which is just a few miles from our campus. I was trained as a political scientist, really as a historian of political ideas. And my work focused on 18th century global development. 
And I focused a lot on poverty and international response to poverty. And over time, I just became increasingly kind of left feeling dissatisfied by the disengagement of the academy from engaging real world issues like poverty and an environmental crisis. And when the academy conventionally does engage those things, it's from a very rarefied kind of position from above. And the research is often seen as applied where the researcher descends down into the community, studies it and ascends back up and publishes papers and books that circles of people in their small universes read. And that model just left me cold. Mm -hmm. So in the course of my career, I began to think more about how an academic researcher could actually partner with communities that were facing these challenges mm -hmm. at the front lines, which completely reorients the idea of academic research from a vertical kind of exercise to a horizontal one where the community actually begins to cope, you know, co-develop the questions and, and the answers to these challenges. And so when I set up the Center on Global Justice, we became centrally committed to doing this kind of community-engaged research. And it was in this period that um, a, a mutual colleague introduced Teddy and me. Mm -hmm. And while... Um, I was working on, you know, projects all over Africa and South Asia. Teddy was really focused on the challenges right near our campus at the border. And so we began to join forces, bringing Center on Global Justice and Teddy's history of, you know, urban and architectural research at the border together. And that was about 12 years ago. And we've, you know, we've been building and developing our practice and our project together ever since. There you go. That's, that's um. Oh, oh, sorry, Teddy, I interrupted. No, I just was going to say that maybe we should tell the story. I mean, in reality, that mutual friend, uh, actually the, the, the cultural coyote who, 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 who linked us, even though Fona and I teach in the same university, but we didn't know each other yet. Didn't know each other. It, it, it didn't was, know each other. It was Richard Sennett. It was Richard Sennett. And, and, and that was really sweet because he came and together, it was the first time Fona and myself, together we, we crossed the border with Richard uh, to to go and visit sites and so on and and since then we became inseparable Fona and myself and so but I, I should say again this interface between a political theorist and an architect I think we are we belong to two different parts of campus mm. of our, our university that that never really speak to each other right and so for us incrementally it became that beautiful interpenetration mm. the idea that maybe political scientists could begin thinking spatially about uh, their issues and their research, but also how architects, humanities, artists can begin to think more ethically, more socially and more politically. Uh, I think through political thought and, and, and prioritizing, let's say, the kind of crisis as a way of reorganizing our own procedures. So I think we began to exchange different methodologies to approach uh, many of our work, much of our work. And to tell you the truth, Fona now, it, it, like like she she should get a, a, an honorary degree in urban in urbanism and architecture. I mean she, and I think that I have begun to learn a lot more about um, you know obviously her own uh, specialization. So yes, I think it has been what I call a wonderful mutual positive contamination. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a really interesting one. This idea of interdisciplinarity because what you're saying, Fona and Teddy, is is my experience too that that there's these silos of knowledge, particularly within the academy, but within the profession of architecture, um, which are incredibly resistant to any form of modification. Um, and even where we do do this kind of participatory research, as you said, Fona, we, we do it from on high, we do it without question, we do it from a position of, it's not even a position of privilege, it's an assumption of privilege that I, I find actually quite hair-raising in many situations. But there's this, so like, how does it, how to, and then even when we try and do interdisciplinary research, what we all do is we try and make everybody else do what we're doing. So how do you actually, how do you, I mean, sounds like a dumb question. How do you operate? How does a political theorist think spatially? How do you, 
Like, what are the devices? This, I think, is a question that I assumed we would come to later, but I think it's relevant now. And what are the devices for starting to think ethically, given the tools of architecture, given that the mode that we operate through is as it is? How do we think ethically? And, and how does a, a, a political scientist, uh, someone who's involved in the political economy, how do they think spatially? Do you start drawing, Fauna? Did you get a sketchbook and a thick pencil? I've tried, but I, I gave up on that. No. But you know, the truth is, so we, we've been a little bit critical of the kind of academic mantra of interdisciplinarity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been it's been in many ways the reason why our campus has gotten behind our work. So Teddy and I lead a, a kind of a truly interdisciplinary space within the university that's very agile mm-hmm. and able to kind of do its work without being beholden to any disciplinary agenda on the mm-hmm. campus. So that's been very helpful. Um, but we've really, you know, this sort of interdisciplinarity as a kind of, you know, as an aspirational handholding exercise, um, we don't really see it that way. It's, it's the challenges themselves that demand the knowledges that need to be around the table, both the academic and the non-academic knowledges. Mm-hmm. And the real challenge, obviously, we operate in very different merit cultures within the university with different ideas of production value. So, for example, in the social sciences, you know, we are accustomed to seeing ourselves as scientific interpreters of reality Mm -hmm. and you know what you do with data measuring and making predictions and bringing in any sort of qualitative measure or engaging the subject in any sort of way pollutes the purity of the science Mm -hmm. so the kind of work that i do the attempt to kind of bring ethics and sort of spatial justice into a scientific activity has been met with skepticism. And I've actually been, it's been a challenge within the social sciences to get validation for this, for this sort of work. Um, but, and Teddy too has faced similar kinds of challenges in the, you know, in the spaces that he moves. But at bottom for us, it's about learning how to communicate beyond disciplinary silos, learning that we're often speaking the same languages, different words to do it so learning how and and we and we pass this on to our students as well all of the research teams that we put into the field are comprised of students from different fields from the arts and humanities social sciences engineering business you know the natural sciences learning how to communicate with one another across silos focus together on a challenge. How can we work with this particular community on a particular climate adaptation project? Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how the, how the knowledges begin to, br- you know, how, how they begin to bridge as they focus on a shared challenge. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing that we can say about this is also that that has been fundamental to our practice is to take what we call creative detours. I mean, obviously I, operate still based on the centrality of spatial thinking, aesthetics, architecture, the spatialization of time, the temporalization of space, a variety of particular procedures that architects obviously normatively engage, but often it's been necessary to suspend that Mm -hmm. obsession, let's say with architecture as chosen, self-referential autonomous field, uh, focusing on the design of the object, Uh, but instead to really think relationally about how that connects to so many other things, primarily the many topics and registers that have been peripheral to the field of design. So in that sense, uh, I remember the words of Geoffrey Capra, who challenged us to rethink what ecology means in our time, that traditionally ecology, let's say the ecology of the bicycle has only talked about the functional relationship of the parts of the bicycle to itself. So again, it's a kind of autonomous self-referential thinking. And instead he says, now we have to ask more questions. Where that bicycle was produced, but what kind of political economy, what kind of labor, where, and what what is ultimately its cultural application? Because it is different to ride a bicycle in India, China, than California. Mm -hmm. So all I'm saying is that when we speak of interdisciplinarity and we are critical of it, it's exactly what you said, 
really Ambrose at the end of the day is that here in the university, in universities, just sitting around a round table uh, where everybody's just saying something from the vantage point of their own silos. <laughs> but just by being together in the one room, we think that we're being interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinarity for it to be meaningful, like deep ecology, this is what Geoffrey Cabra said, that we need to deepen the notion of ecology. We need to begin to exchange ways of doing and making and thinking. In other words, can for a moment an architect begin to absorb the procedures of an anthropologist or a sociologist, or why not the methodologies of political theorists to, to, to dig deeper into histories of oppression, into histories, intellectual histories for that matter, of the institutional me mechanisms that have produced so much havoc. So in other words, yes, it's about stepping out for a moment in, in order to contact other modalities of process, of proceed. It's a procedural issue really at the end of the day. Fantastic. I mean, so clear and I'm very grateful for that. Now, <clears throat> we are, we come together today to speak about two books of yours, uh, Spatializing Justice, uh, Justice Building Blocks, um, published at the end of last year, and Socializing Architecture, published just now um, by MIT Press, um, which are amazing books, amazing designerly books, and um, And they're all based around this work that you've been doing within the within I'm assuming within the uh, Center for Global Justice, but also within your broader architectural practice. Is that right, or is it, or is this all this work de de derived from the from the Center for Global Justice? We are a, a university-based practice in a sense, because part of our effort was to really uh, reorganize internal protocols to the institution here, not only to address a uh, research and education that is socially engaged. Mm -hmm. Basically, we have the Center of Global Justice, which is really our research arm uh, for advancing a variety of areas of research with our partners, our community partners. But also here is where we also have our architectural practice. So a studio, Teddy Cruz and Fona Foreman, mm -hmm. architectural practice. So we have found finally, after all these years, a beautiful way mm -hmm. of triangulating education, research, and practice inside the same laboratory. And, and also in that sense, carrying the university mm -hmm. as a partner to really invest in the kinds of projects we are uh, you know, advancing. So Studio Dirty Cruz, I probably came across it 20 years ago, 19, 18 years ago, something like that. It makes me feel terrifically old, much older than I actually feel, weirdly enough. Um, and, and yet you've been together 13 years. Has there been, so the, the context that you're working in, and, and Teddy, you've been working in that at least since then. Um, Fonna, you came to it, I don't know what, 10 years after Teddy had, had been operating in that area. Obviously, Teddy, I would be very interested to know how you feel your work has been inflected by this, because I can see a, I can see a consistency in the work over those years, but certainly it's, um, as you say, it's become much more kind of politically charged. But I suppose to understand it properly, we have to understand the context in which you're talking about, which from the perspective of someone in Southeast England, near the richest city in the history of the world or whatever London is, um, but, but, but at the same time, living in, in, an, uh, in an area that is characterized by transient populations, um, incredible levels of migration these days, um, deep, deep, deep impoverishment and inequality we have a kind of sense maybe of what we're, you're dealing with at the Tijuana border, but perhaps you can unpack it a little bit and explain it in detail. Sure. So we really see our practice as an embedded mm -hmm. research-based practice here in the border region between San Diego and Tijuana. So our campus is just a few miles away from this this international crisis zone, which allows an amazing proximity between the field and the studio, right? So we, you know, we, we've we've really committed our practice to this region and partnering very closely with communities on both sides mm -hmm. of the border. We see this zone, this very local zone for us, as a microcosm of all the injustices and indignities faced by vulnerable people, mm -hmm. you know, across the world, you know, political violence, dramatic inequality, accelerating 
you know, climate impacts and migratory patterns, labor exploitation, you know, border building everywhere. So we think a lot about the correspondence between our local zone and conflict zones across the world and how we can learn from those zones, bringing best practices into our own region and how what we're doing here can become models um, for practices working in conflict zones across the world. I mean, we've worked in other sites, but it always comes back here. We bring lessons that we're learning from urban projects that we've done around the world uh, right back here into our own into our own neighborhood. You can only imagine how many calls we get often of artists wanting to come and do a, an installation or a work at the border. Uh, and, you know, uh, and even though we do not have anything you know, negative to say about ephemeral acts of resistance. We have engaged into those acts of performative resistance in the past. We have a, we have grown dissatisfied with the idea that often um, artistic interventions come into a territory and then they pack their bags two or three days later and nobody stays around really representing politically and in many other ways those communities that are really suffering in the trenches. Uh, so who is going to take care of many of those issues after the happening. This is something that we discussed, Fona and myself, very much. And we, throughout time, I think we have been committed to the ter to this territory in order to deepen again our awareness, but also our relationship with very concrete actors and communities, grassroots organizations that are really in the at the forefront of challenging and, and, and resisting and fighting against those forces of marginalization. So yes, we decided to be alone term, rooted and very permanent, kind of how would I call it, uh, yeah, uh, embedded practice. Uh, and obviously, it has to do with the uh, the research that we have advanced throughout the years. I mean, as Fona said, this is really our laboratory for tackling many of those uh, vectors of force that Fona mentioned earlier, those challenges of urbanization. Because when geop geopolitical forces hit the ground, they are specialized. In other words, they specialize in justices. And so that's, that's what the, that was the generative sort of idea about creating this first book. Uh, what might be the first, the, the 30 most important uh, provocations? Mm -hmm. uh, let's say manifesto-like for a moment, even though we are suspicious of manifestos often, but uh, what might be the 30 most important priorities uh, as we challenge, uh, to challenge really uh, those alienating and mar uh, forces of, of marginalization? Well, I know I, you're not spending too much time. It's uh, it's really interesting, and it's really um, you're just you're explaining it very very well. I think the the and I really love this idea of groundedness. So I do a, I do work of this kind, and I've been developing since coming to this university. I've been developing some socially engaged practice in an interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, which I think might be interdisciplinary, but with new trousers on or something. Anyway, it's um it's the same sort of thing, and and for for me. That embeddedness is, to a certain degree, very. It's just simply good manners. If you go into poor communities to do research or to do practice, and then you wander off as soon as you've achieved it, it's very. It's just very inelegant, as my old uh, PhD supervisor Diana Mitlin called it. It's just really, really rather gross. Um, no, it's true. It is gross, and and not only that. What it's done is it's built a kind of an suspicion within communities of university researchers and university designers who arrive with good ideas because <laughs> they disappear. And one of the benefits of doing this long-term local work is that we built trust mm. in communities over time. And we can actually see things happening in these communities as the result of our partnerships. Mm. So, you know, th this trust breeds great work and this great work breeds change. And it just, it's a mutually reinforcing kind of process. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, and yet, you know, this idea that you have to listen and be humble and open, we also come with ideas, mm. right? So it's not that, it's not that we arrive as sort of empty receptacles waiting to be filled with sort of the community's desires. We all have desires. The community has desires. We're coming with expertise and knowledge. It's about how to weave these things together into a more responsive and effective approach 
you know, to the to the challenges these communities are facing. And sometimes that's actually that's actually conflictual, right? So sometimes you have to work through the rough bumps of merging ways of thinking and doing. Um, but but in a context of trust, you can get through those challenges and come through on the other end. Mm-hmm. So that's what this long-term local work has enabled uh, here in our practice. So that interdisciplinarity is quite is quite an interesting one, isn't it? That it's the idea of disciplinarity is is essentially a top-down idea anyway, because marginalized communities of deep impoverishment probably don't consider themselves as having a discipline to begin with. So you're talking about disciplines plus those other people who are we might describe as normal people. Um, and so it becomes even more complicated, that negotiation. And this idea of competing desires, as you put it, how, how do you measure success in that environment? Like, what does success look like in a Fauna Forman Studio Teddy Cruz project? Yes, uh, you know, and this maybe helps us to, to, to arrive to the main point that at least I wanted to say earlier, because obviously a lot of these issues emerge from the specificity, the political specificity mm-hmm. of this uh, geography of conflict. And I was saying that a lot of our work has dealt with researching the bottom-up energies, uh, the the kinds of processes that are embedded in migrant neighborhoods as people negotiate their own spaces as uh, processes of solidarity and uh, localized uh, policy, let's say, the, the, the sort of organizational, social, and political practices begin to emerge to resist the imposition of exclusionary economic policies and so on. So in other words, the, the creative intelligence that is inscribed in these migrant communities, we've been uh, researching, but also mobilizing to uh, allow us to really rethink our own methods, our own procedures. And somehow we feel that this uh, knowledge needs to be represented uh, towards the institution. So often we say that our practice is uh, very much interested, not only on the bottom up, but primarily in the interface between the top down and the bottom up. Somebody has to facilitate how to enable that knowledge from below to trickle upwards Mm -hmm. in order to knock on the doors of the institutions and infiltrate into those institutions, in fact, to transform top-down policy. So connecting the resources of institutions and redirecting them uh, to support that creative intelligence is really part of this facilitation. So that implies ultimately uh, the co-production of the city with others, right? I think so. I think we have been very much inspired by the idea that uh, we and our practice we are trying to co-produce the city with migrants. Migrants are our partners, uh, and in that sense, one fundamental inspiration for this first book uh, of Spatializing Justice is the notion that urban and social justice is a redistributive system or concept. In other words, the redistribution. Justice depends on the redistribution, not only of resources to sites of urgency and poverty, but also uh, uh, the redistribution of knowledges. So the co-production of knowledges uh, has been really part of uh, what we are thinking to to even expand the notion of interdisciplinarity. It's not only everybody inside the university, but how do we then produce new linkages with grassroots organizations Uh, to create circulations of knowledge um, and in fact enable or mobilize the economic power of our public university to become leverage for our grassroots organizations partners to develop their own housing and public space. So something that we can talk later but it is part of the second book which is really the second book is really the, the actual catalog of projects that are our response to the to the to the 30 provocations of the first book. Uh, the last chapter is about a major project for us that really linked all the dots, which is the community stations, the cross-border community stations, which are in fact very interesting models uh, of collaborative education with migrant communities, mm-hmm. the knowledge, but also became our main model of shared urban intervention, where the university's programmatic and economic power became leverage for our partners in the communities to be developers of their own housing and their own 
public space. And we have already achieved. So what success look like, looks like that we have already begun, in fact, finally, after all these years, begin to present a new model of um, economic and community process that uh, advances communities as stewards of their own neighborhood-based infrastructure. We have built already two projects that are really illustrations of those of that possibility. Really, it's really wonderful. I love this idea of, co so I, I'm interested in the idea of co-production and I suppose I would I'd like a little bit, it's, it's one of those words that actually has kind of a technical definition but has become generalized as a kind of notion, hasn't it? But this idea that you used of circulations of knowledges, Teddy, I think is a really elegant way of putting it. That it's not about, it sort of eschews some of those, that kind of rather, I, again, rather abusive um, practices of participatory action, which have become, I think, speaking personally, I think rather, um, rather poor, you know, they're, 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 you know, participation is a device now used more by developers than it is by communities. And that should tell you everything you need to know about it. This co-production has something else about it. So uh, maybe, maybe, um, yeah, so I, I did want to touch on this idea, like, so the book Socializing Justice, and you've, you've mentioned this a number of times, Teddy, has these 30 provocations, these 30 prompts to action. Um, and, and obviously, we can't, we can't go through all of them. But I thought maybe that we might speak about a few of them. Um, I picked out a few and I don't know if there is any that specifically that you feel are, are, are really useful ways of kind of introducing some of the, the energy and the, the dynamic of the book. I, 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 the, the first one I picked out was number six, which, was, which is called Visualize Urban Conflict. And I thought that that might be a really interesting one to kind of pick apart, because, particularly because of the context in which you're living. Like, what does that mean? What do we do? How does it operate? I mean, all of these are so fundamental to our practice. We wanted to produce a monograph in two volumes. One, again, these 30 billion blocks, which is really the basic, or kind of, how would I call it, the framework conceptually, our mm. main tenets, our commitments, really. Yeah. And then the second book uh, really are the projects that follow those commitments. Um, uh, so I was going to say the most important, but at the end of the day, all of them are important. But uh, one of the major ones, ones is uh, the visualization of conflict. Conflict becomes our creative tool. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, uh, in order to really tackle many of these issues, we need to understand the very conditions that have produced the crisis. Mm -hmm. The knowledges, the, the institutional mechanisms, the processes that have produced the current crisis without understanding the specificity of the conditions that produce the crisis is very difficult. Yeah. That our interventions are relevant in that sense. And so, uh, yes, conflict uh, becomes our creative tool. And this implies visualizations of those histories of oppression, obviously of, in other words, in order to really develop our own economic performance, let's say for with our partners to co-develop housing and public space, we had to understand specific, in a very specific way, what are the modes of financialization that exist at this moment that only benefit private developers? We needed to understand lending in more specific ways or subsidy structures. In other words, to again, we need to understand the conditions uh, uh, first in order to then reorganize them, reorganize resources and modes of intervention. And one, the, the building block for this particular piece is one that we, we call 60 linear miles of transborder conflict. In other words, what we have done is that we go through the territory very specifically. We traverse it, sometimes walking, sometimes really moving through. But we need we understand specific urban borders across those 60 linear miles. We argue every city in the world, if if any all architects could, could walk 60 linear miles from or drive, whatever, from downtown to the periphery, and you will begin to witness. The, the, the moments of conflict between top-down forces of urbanization colliding with bottom-up social or ecological, uh, you know, dynamics. So to understand those moments of crisis internal to the city. So yes, that's what pertains to the, you know, this particular building block. The need to visualize conflict as a yeah. creative. And 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 a, and a, that particular building block, this idea of visualizing conflict, makes a lot of sense in the context of. Of, of where you are of San Diego and and, and the Tijuana border. Um, I, I was one of the 
provocate well one of the prompts that i sent to you both before was questioning or asking really i suppose this idea that that all of these provocations and they are very elegant by the way and i love a good a good it's the architect in me that loves a good pithy um three worder um but but they're, and they're all, and I and I like this idea of acting as well. So this is again this this leap you're making out of the academy, the the you know the seminar room and the and the tables into the world of action, which I think is demanded at this moment. But for I, I did wonder about this this issue that you are all of them. Well, as I read it, all of the um, provocations seem to be about in some way contesting centralized power structures, systemic. Um, systemic issues and promoting um, a much more, as you say, contextual, much more grounded, much more situated kind of solution. The, the, the crises that you're describing seem to me to be crises of modernity and the institutional, the systemic problems are modern problems. And I, I suppose one of the things that attracts me so much to the work that you're doing is the, the idea that through enabling grassroots communities, we are in a way disassembling that hierarchy, those, those modernist hierarchies, which I think is really good. But at the same time, you don't entirely reject them. You, Teddy, remain an architect. You are both within academic institutions. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that balance. Like, how do we, how do we, co-produce effectively that balance? How do we, to, to use your words, um, how do we generate a meaningful interface between the top down and the bottom up? Where do they meet? Is it just above the grassroots or is or does the, the top down have to step way back and allow the grassroots to percolate up through the institutions? No, this is this is very important to get back to your the the early part of your question about systems and institutions. Mm -hmm. Many people who focus on the capacities of the bottom up have become very critical of the role of institutions in in urban development. We believe in the top down public and it needs to be reconstituted to be responsive um, to to public needs. And so this role of urban curator or facilitator between the knowledges, carrying the, the knowledges and capacities and aspirations of the bottom up to institutions to hold them accountable. We want to help construct accountable public institutions that then reinvest in intelligent ways. You're right, participatory practices have become box ticking exercises for urban institutions, right? They tick the box and then they ascend back up and do whatever they're going to do. No, we want the top down to be authentically responsive to the needs and aspirations of the bottom up. So from the base of the public university, we're able to open doors that you know communities might not otherwise have access to. Um, now, there's a, you know, Notice in the in the in the building block that we just discussed, it's not just about urban conflict, but it's about visualizing urban conflict. And that visual component is very important to everything that we've tried to do in these books as well as in our practice. This is about changing societal norms and perceptions about those systems and institutions that govern the way we go on. There's a tendency, particularly in underserved communities, to naturalize and normalize the conditions of injustice, that this is just simply the way of the world. And one of the things we want to visualize the springs and pulleys of injustice is to help build the capacity for political action within these communities. So, for example, we live very close to the busiest international checkpoint in the, in the Western hemisphere. And it's not surprising that the you know, quality of life and health of communities that abut that border is dismal. So there are high rates, for example, of lung disease. Residents in these communities have naturalized lung disease and emphysema and so forth. It's just the way of life. This is the way things go on here. No, by visualizing the histories of border building, of the way freeway infrastructure was designed, of the way of the way uh, these neighborhoods were developed, where schools are placed, 
Human beings made those decisions mm -hmm. to put your neighborhood in the vortex of these dynamics, right? So human action needs to resist it. Mm -hmm. So visualizing urban conflict is a way of building capacity in neighborhoods to challenge institutions and systems that are fundamentally unjust. Yeah, loud and clear. Teddy, you raised your hand at one point there. Did you no, want to- we wanted to say that at the end, we do believe in institutions. Mm. Our project demands institution, institutional accountability. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a sense, really is about recalibrating the interface, as I was saying earlier, between the mm -hmm. top down and the bottom up. Yeah. And many in our work, in our work, really the grassroots and the bottom up is leading conceptually mm -hmm. in terms of ideation. But I think that we we cannot just suspend institutional uh, involvement in this case. That's the reason we believe in a new type of, um, you know, institutional critique project. Um, after all, modernity, as Octavio Paz, you know, the Mexican poet said, is not only about the onward march of industrialization, but it's really about the capacity of institutions for self-critique. And I think that the, for us, the, all the crises that we're witnessing at the at bottom are, are really a cultural crisis of the institutions. Unable institutions are unable to reorganize themselves to tackle the crisis. Mm. New kind of planetary coordination, all the way to the specificity of local environments to reimagine bioregions like ours, because the border wall at the end is a self-inflicted wound. It's not only about an artifact that separates us from the other, but it's inflicting damage to our own socio-environmental assets that are shared between two communities divided by that wall. In fact, these two communities should be collaborating because their destinies are inter is intertwined. So yes, modernism for that matter also is not just an aesthetic project. Mm -hmm. It's about shaping the institutions that can endorse and support that project hopefully for social equitable ends. You see what I'm trying to say? So we cannot decouple uh, the kind of overarching, um, you know, reorganization, again, of resources and knowledges. And in that sense, it's really an institutional project that connects uh, in more effective and, uh, and just ways with the bottom up. But yes, the top down had its chance and it screwed it up. Yeah, yeah. So yes, do that now. We need we need to let the creative intelligence of the bottom up allow for the reimagining of public and urban policy. That's what it comes to. And who who facilitates that? I think architects have a role, yeah. as well as political theorists. Well, I think this is really interesting. So this is something that you touched on earlier, Fauna. Is this is this idea that when we do you know, authentic um, community engagement, we go in as empty vessels. Us professionals, we must sort of abandon all our value systems and all our knowledges and all our privilege and all of these things and sort of debase up well humble ourselves and 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 that's not that's not what Eleanor Ostrom means when she talks about co-production that's not what um that's not that's not going to achieve anything because as far as I see they know you're lying and you know you're lying and when you cycle away on your nice bicycle to your nice part of town you ignore what they've said because it's you know it's unsustainable. So bringing up that 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 I think that's a very elegant idea that we we come with our baggage, but we also come with our proficiencies. And to deny them is disingenuous. And and as, as you said, Fauna, you know they don't believe you in the end. They distrust the process. Right. Well, Eleanor Ostrom is one of my one of my intellectual heroes, and I've I've learned a great deal um, from from her. But but right, I mean, I, as you said, there's a there's a there's an imperative when you first arrive to to surrender and listen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, you know. But 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 the longer term relations that we've had have allowed us um, to be more overt mm -hmm. in bringing what we can um, and 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 navigating um, navigating tensions and moving forward. Yeah, I I. We don't have huge amounts of time. I know you've got a hard leave at, in, in a matter of minutes, but I wanted to go, the, 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 the conversation is complicated and it can tend towards the heavy. But I think what is in both, both books, they are leavened by a sense of creative joy. And I think that's really 
why the work is so inspiring, because it's not just a tirade. As you say, Teddy, it's not a manifesto. It's about a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's not that bounded. It's not that controlled. And there's lots of ideas within it. For example, the, the provocation number 22, transcend hospitality, is actually an incredibly joyful one. And I wanted to, uh, and, and then you, you see it unpacked in, in the, the example that you gave in, in um, socializing architecture, the idea of these community stations, which become spaces of cooperation, of um, mutuality, of understanding, of sharing. Um, and I just wondered whether we could, whether you could talk a little bit about this idea, this um, sure. the, the flip side to the rage, in a way, the flip side to the. You know, one of the things that we've experienced here living in the border region for so long is that things go on differently here than the official political narratives about the border region. You know, the site of criminality, the site of hostility and conflict. I mean, there is that there, but life also goes on here. And we are actually inspired by the infectious optimism of communities that are struggling against these injustices and resisting and, and persevering. Um, so again, we learn a lot from that. And part of the joy you might feel in the work really emerges from this incredible inspiration. Um, but you know, we're, we're also witnessing amazing, and again, we're, we're, we're living in a border region that is artificially disrupted by a physical barrier. And one of the things that we witness in our work are these amazing flows and circulations that move back and forth across the wall that really constitute the hybrid identities of people who inhabit this region. And one of the things we like to do in the pedagogic work you know, within our, our projects is to imagine what this region is like without the wall. It's this very speculative, imaginative exercise where people begin to stitch together our hopes and aspirations for this region. It's a really wonderful exercise. Now, on, on this issue of hospitality, you know, look, we we obviously the the when the migrant arrives, there are immediate needs of food and shelter, needs of the body. But as time goes on, hospitality is not the proper. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a charitable concept. It's a it's a wonderful ethical concept, but it's not a model for an inclusive society. How do we think about long-term inclusion of migrants who are arriving in increasing numbers over time? And again, how do we think about this in a regional way without the border wall there um, to obstruct our thinking? So thinking beyond hospitality means reimagining ourselves alongside the migrant. There is, you know, with, with accelerating climate change and all of the stressors in Central America right now, migration is accelerating. We're just at the tip of it, right? We don't typically think of this region as a site of climate migration, but that's what it is. These people are arriving here because of agricultural failure. We need to be reimagining this region uh, in light of these inevitable geopolitical forces that are going to change our demographics here. So yes, we're hopeful. We're hopeful about, about what this region might become in the next period. And it's our community partners that actually give us, give us that buoyancy in the face of so much, mm. so many reasons not to be hopeful. Beautiful. I mean, can I ask one more question? Okay, this is the last question, I promise you. And it's to do with the nature of the books themselves, which um, <clears throat> are beautiful um, and visually stimulating, um, full of wonderful images. The second book, dare I say, even more than the first book, although the first book is full of these wonderful diagrams as well. Um, and it brings, you know, it keep, as, a, as a designer myself, um, I, I wonder what you see in these. Could you sort of unpack a little bit what drawing and designing does? Like what is the role of design here? Particularly perhaps for you, Fonna, how do you how do you see design as leavening your practice? Well, you know, it's been a it's been a challenge for me. Um, because social scientists typically communicate in very sterile narrative prose. 
And I became increasingly interested in communicating to broader audiences beyond academic audiences. And the visualization, the diagramming of complex data has become a, a resource for us in mobilizing community sort of participation. And so, you know, we see these books as communicating to many different kinds of audiences, academic audiences, yes, architectural audiences, um, uh, to students, but also to communities and community agencies that are eager uh, to move the needle um, on the ground. The way we see the kind of the relation between the books is, you know, the first book, Spatializing Justice, we really wanted to capture the sort of theoretical substrate of, of our practice and of our work. Mm. And we wanted these provocations to stand alone as a kind of manifesto-like document to sort of to sort of mark where we are as a practice really in the early decades of the, the, the 21st century. And then the second book is the monograph, really, that we've been wanting to publish for the last decade, where we're really documenting our projects, both theoretically, you know, the kind of the theoretical sort of foundations of, of the work, the descriptions of the work, but also a visual kind of, you know, a visual diary of, of the projects themselves and their evolution. And You'll see that the, the the images combine, you know, con, you know, conventional architectural, you know, drawings and 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 photography, but also a lot focused on process and the community process of designing and developing and collectively funding and and at the end managing and 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 uh, programming these spaces over time. So. The books really are a, a unified whole separated under two covers. Uh, yes, uh, uh, you know, one thing that is essential, maybe I can say in the relationship between Fona and myself in terms of exchanging approaches to this, uh, is really bringing back the, the, the operative nature of diagrammatics, in a sense, um, to think conceptually about procedures as opposed to things. Um, but in essence, at the end of the day, uh, yes, we en have enjoyed throughout time in terms of the debate in architecture, by the way, uh, about drawings versus diagrams. I mean, drawings ultimately describe the reality. But what is interesting about diagrams is that diagrams, in fact, perform the information they contain. So for us, I think we have returned to draw a drawing as a performative, also operative system that allows us to really uh, detonate a process. And, and, and the second book, obviously, there is a variety of diagrams and drawings. Uh, in fact, some of those drawings, by the way, Ambrose, are co-produced with our community partners. So we believe in drawings also, obviously, mm -hmm. as political tools to reorganize a conversation, particularly between community activists, politicians, and ourselves. Wonderful. Thank you very much. That was really very wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Ambrose. Thank you. And so it goes. An honour really to speak with such engaged and prolific folk. So thanks to Fonna and Teddy for that. Please see the podcast description for links to the two books on the MIT Press website, where you can buy them, and also to Fonna and Teddy's professional profiles and websites, including their practice website. Thanks to MIT Press for the hard copy and for the PDF of the books. Do please share this episode far and wide, of course. And thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>